Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Believe Podcast Network, SoCal Sweat. My name is Ann McDaniels, a former NFL cheerleader and product manager turned actress and model who dreams of being a UFC fighter. Yow. Learning strategies to help motivate others leads me to bring you interviews each week from a range of athletes, experts in fitness and nutrition, and so much more. Thanks for listening to Believe, the number one podcast for working professionals, and let's push our endorphins to higher performance through SoCal Sweat. This is your host, Ann McDaniels, and thank you for joining me on another episode of SoCal Sweat. Today, we're going to be talking about depression and bipolar disorder and erasing those stigmas. What is bipolar disorder? According to NIMH, bipolar disorder, or formerly called manic depressive illness or manic depression, is a mental disorder that causes unusual shifts in mood, energy, activity levels, concentration, and the ability to carry out day-to-day tasks. There are several stigmas around this disorder. A stigma is when someone sees you in a negative way because of your mental illness. Discrimination is when someone treats you in a negative way because of your mental illness. Social stigma and discrimination can make mental health problems worse and stop a person from getting the help they need. I'm so excited to bring on today's guest, Natasha Tracy, who is a renowned mental health speaker, author, consultant, and writer. She specializes in bipolar disorder, depression, and other mental health issues. Her expertise has been sought by academics and reporters, and she was the proud recipient of Erasing the Stigma Leadership and Leadership Award from Dee Dee Hirsch. In 2016, Natasha released the book, Lost Marbles, Insights into My Life with Depression and Bipolar. And the Book Authority has named this book the second best manic depression book of all time. She was named one of the top 10 mental health influencers by sharecare.com and now consults in online platform building and social media influence. Natasha has written the award-winning blog Bipolar Burble, detailing the life with bipolar disorder for 15 years, which has allowed her to appear on countless top health blog posts. She also writes Breaking Bipolar at Healthy Place, garnering three back-to-back web health awards. Natasha is a Bachelor of Computer Science and Background in Technology, and she previously worked in training, implementation, technical writing, and program management for a variety of companies, including Microsoft. And here is Natasha Tracy. Well, good morning, Natasha Tracy out of British Columbia, Canada. Is it freezing up there? Actually, no, it's a gorgeous sunny day. And I'm so glad to have you join us today. Um, You have written your book, Lost Marbles, and working on the second. What is the second one going to be called? The second one has a tentative name, actually, of Found Marbles. I wanted to really continue the theme that I had built on the first book. And did did you get any feedback to change or alter the scope of the second book from just the reviews or what people were looking for for further? 
No, I think that um, I've, I've had some amazing feedback on the book. So many people have said all kinds of uh, incredible and in-depth things about the book, which I truly appreciate. But in this particular case, this book is actually taking sort of the end of the first book and almost expanding on it into its own full book. So I really wanted to take what I had started in that book and where I really offer, I think, um, some hope for people who are struggling with serious mental illness and then just bring that into its whole own book. Okay, excellent. We look forward to that. Found Marbles. From Lost Marbles to Found Marbles. Very, very creative. Now, Natasha, what was your childhood like? Were you allowed to talk about your feelings in the household or were you stifled? So... Childhood is a tricky subject, I think, for everyone. <laughs> everyone thinks they have a normal childhood, um, even though most of us have distinct childhoods, right? Unique childhoods. So for me, um, I did grow up in a household where emotions weren't particularly welcome. And it was because, um, just because of the dynamics of my household. Now, in my particular case, I have a father who was an alcoholic. And my mother was always trying to do a lot to um, run around and sort of deal with that situation. And she also worked full time. So she was very busy. And so because she was so busy trying to deal with acting up kids and kids with big emotions was not something she really had time for. So that's why it was stifled, not so much because she wanted to, but more because it was just something that needed to be done in order to keep the household running. And did you feel as if you had to kind of be a ping pong ball or tennis ball going back and forth? Like, would she talk poorly about your father or, or vice versa? Not in my household. Um, I don't think I was a ping pong ball, but I did feel what I felt in that household was very lonely. I felt very separated from everyone. And, um, and we actually, I grew up very uh, in the country. So very far away from other kids. So I didn't have other kids to play with. And I felt very separated from the adults. Um, my father was often asleep or passed out. So he wasn't around. And then, as I said, my mother did need to work full time. So it was a tricky situation for a kid. Um, I felt extremely alone. And what I realized later is that even as a child, I had experienced depressive symptoms but obviously as a child I did not recognize them as such all I knew is I felt incredibly sad and incredibly alone and how did you how did you deal with that at that point because you're, you're not mature enough to seek out a counselor or did a school counselor maybe see that you were indicating these signs and pull you aside so when I was really young all I remember really is crying a lot to be honest with you I remember being alone and crying and I did not have any help at that time. However, when I was 12, um, my parents actually split up. And at that time, I did start seeing a counselor primarily because there was a divorce in the works. Um, and so uh, my mother did recognize that that in and of itself was a difficult thing for a child to go through. And so there was help available for that. So that was my start of understanding psychology and mental health. Do you think that person did a good job at that point? Do you feel like that it helped you? When I was really young, so I don't think it really helped me to be honest with you, but I don't think it's necessarily her fault. I think when you're dealing with a 12 year old, it's extremely difficult to reach them in a way that's gonna work for them. Right. And I will say that I was an unusual 12 year old, right? I wasn't a standard 12 year old in that I had quite a, an intellect for my age and I was very intellectual. So perhaps the approaches that would work for another child weren't as successful with me. Because you could almost kind of manipulate what you wanted to hear. 
It's not so much that um, I could manipulate it. It's more that it just didn't speak to me um, on, at, at a level that I felt use, was useful. Like perhaps she was, they were speaking to you as a child psychiatrist where they should have kind of adulted it because you, were, you had a much higher level of maturity and cerebral awareness, basically. Cerebral awareness, for sure. You know, as, as a 12-year-old, I obviously didn't have emotional awareness. That's not something I had, but I did obviously have a lot of intellectual awareness. And so that is tricky combination to manage. Sure. Now, with all of this angst and all this stress upon you, how was your, how was your peer group at school, especially as a 12-year-old? That's like middle school, which is the worst of the worst, as we all know. <laughs> but even like dating in high school and things like that, did you ever shut off certain dating aspects because of just the way you focused on relationships or what you saw, or maybe just, maybe you were afraid of being hurt because you've already been hurt or betrayed perhaps by a parent, even though you, even though not intentionally, you may have felt abandoned. Did you, did that affect you at all with friendships and or relationships? Well, what I remember is by the time I was in middle school and high school, I was definitely experiencing some major mood symptoms, including major depressive symptoms. So what I found is that I was very upset a lot of the time. And so the things that affected other people my age didn't affect me because my moods, my depressions, that kind of thing were so big. They were so much more powerful than the trite nonsense. That's my feeling um, at the time um, that other teenagers were going through. So for example, I remember one time I was probably about 14 or 15 years old and I was crying in the bathroom and I was actually really suicidal at the time. And I was thinking about my suicide and I was crying my eyes out and someone came in and said, Oh, is there something wrong? Did you break up with your boyfriend? And I just in my own head thought, how could a boy ever do this to me? This is so much more important than a boy. That's what I felt in my own brain. Right. So I was very detached from what a normal teenager would have been going through. And I was going through things that were substantial and and very, very traumatic for that age. And at that age, um, I didn't understand anything about mental illness. So I certainly did not have any indication in my own head that I had one. And in fact, in my household, we didn't believe in them. In my household, um, depression was the fault of the person who was experiencing it. And if you felt it, you should just pull up your socks and get better. And certainly anything like an antidepressant was viewed very poorly, because it was thought that that was just for people who couldn't handle their own lives. So in my own head, this was all my fault. And it was, yeah, it was a very big, big deal that was going on for me. And I felt, yeah, it was my fault. And, and that is really bad. And it was kind of the same in my family. It was like weak, mind over matter. Oh, don't be, don't be so weak. Oh, just get up in the morning early. You just got to di discipline yourself or you're being spoiled, you know, things like that. And there, that's the problem, Natasha, because there are those people that, and I don't want to judge anyone, but I look at like, I, I live right near Beverly Hills and I, I do. And again, I don't want to judge anybody, but sometimes it's like rich kid problems. Like they haven't felt any hardship. So the one tiny heart hardship, like, like your, like your little peer in the bathroom there that was breaking up with her boyfriend or asking you that it's just seems like peddly problems, but it is, it, it's all, nobody should be above anybody else, but you do hear the mind over matter thing, but I do think it's slightly getting better. Do you think it is, or do you think it's about, do you think we have a long way to go in this country as far as that stigma goes? 
I think that we've come a long way, certainly since I was a kid. Um, and I think that we have a long way to go. So I think it's a long path. So we're somewhere in the middle of the path. We are walking it though. And I know that I personally have given presentations to many high school students. So I know that there are high school students that are getting so much more education on mental health and mental illness than certainly I ever did. So I do know that that is out there. I do know that it is getting better. However, that is not to say that we don't have more work to do because of course we do. We don't value mental health as much as we should in North America. We look at mental health more as a moral, personal character failing than we do as a real illness. And I just mean on mass, not individually. And certainly, you know, at work, for example, if you were, um, if you had a mental illness and you needed to take a sick day because your mental illness was really bad, people would look at that as a major sign of weakness, as opposed to if you had the flu, where everyone would say, oh no, it's totally okay if you stay home. So we do have a long way to go, but we're working on it. Absolutely. Is that a figure in the bathroom, in the, in the background? It totally is. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. I really, I apologize tremendously <laughs> for my cat. He, he puts his two cents in all the time. I want to hear everything the figure has to say. An audience, she has a beautiful black, it's black and white, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It's named Figaro and it's very, very cute. And it's trying to add it's, it's advice in the background and, and <laughs> we're hearing you Figaro. We're hearing you. And I find Figaro quite charming, even more oh, so that he good. has a backbone. <laughs> He's very aggressive in what he has to say. Go Figaro. Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. <laughs> I, I do. I love that name because of exactly what you just did there. Yes. Yeah. So cute. So cute. Respect. Um, no, I totally agree with you. And I also find that it's, it's interesting to me that boys have been asked to share their feelings. Like boys can have feelings too. And there have been several books written by men on mental health and just, and like the bro code, kind of like we can all cry together. And with the, yes. with the pandemic, the men would go out and like watch football teams or football games or things like that, kind of bro sports. And then they would talk together, even though they were sharing beers, they kind of would share their problems. And that during the pandemic was gone. And a lot of men suffered that greatly because that was kind of their peer groups of sharing things back and forth. So do you have a lot of guys come to you, especially in high school, or is it still kind of like, uh, they have to play tough? I definitely have boys and men come to me with um, mental health concerns. And I actually think that I see more men um, than, so my readership is primarily women. Uh, uh, that's that's true, but I actually see more men approach me than I think would be typical of the percentage of readers. And I think it's actually because they feel safer coming to a person that they don't know, as opposed to trying to come to someone that they do know. So I actually do see a lot of men and boys. And when I was in high school, certainly there would be um, males who would come up to me and talk to me about a variety of different things and indeed some very serious things. So, um, they definitely are looking for ways to reach out and it's a matter of providing the time and space and really safe space for men and of course women as well but for them to come to you and say look this is happening for me I need to talk to someone about it can you help me because certainly I saw it over and over again absolutely now what is your training and background in this besides your wonderful I don't want to say wonderful experience from what you've gone through but very valuable experience which makes you so incredibly approachable because you're 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 putting it all out there in vulnerability and that is not easy but you're doing it out of love to help others and share your experiences because 
the more we share, the more we tell our story, the more open you can be to help others. I just feel that that's, that's an amazing way of doing so. And then do you, did you get specialized training on top of it? So it's funny that you should ask that. Um, so I don't have specialized training in psychology. When I first was went to a psychiatrist and um, eventually was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, it was at that point that I started learning about mental health and mental illness. And basically, it's been a self-directed study ever since. So we're looking at about 20 plus years of self-directed study in the field. And I've actually been a professional in the mental health sphere for about the last 11 years. So um, I've also actually co-authored a paper that was published in a scientific journal. So I do a lot in terms of trying to educate myself in a scientific and medical manner, but I don't actually have a lot of training in that area. Just basic psychology courses from university, nothing more. Sure. And with all due respect to psychiatrists and psychologists, that's just based on a lot of theory. You have actual experience. They wouldn't ask you to contribute to the journal of medicine if you didn't, if you didn't have that intellect. So you really kind of have the best of both worlds and you can always learn a theory. I mean, you just happen to have applied it several times to yourself already um, with a case study. Um, Can I please ask you, would you please break down um, bipolar? Because from my understanding, there's bipolar one and bipolar two. And from from what I know, or what I think I know, bipolar one is up more on the manic side and bipolar two is more on the depressive side. Can you break that down for our audience? Sure. So bipolar disorder is characterized by periods of low mood and high mood. And in bipolar disorder type one, what they experience is uh, manic episodes, which are a high mood and high moods do not necessarily mean good. People often think that it's a good mood, but it's not. What that indicates is a high energy and a number of symptoms, which may or may not feel good to the person who's actually experiencing it. And certainly people in florid mania can actually be a danger to themselves. So it's actually not a fun thing at all. And people with bipolar one also experience major depressive episodes. And those are the very low moods. And again, a very, very dramatic mood shift. And it contains a a cluster of symptoms as well. So then when we look at bipolar two, um, I have bipolar disorder type two. And what we experience is something called hypomania. And what that literally means is a little less of mania. (laughs) So it's, Um, it's a, it's a mood that is elevated and it actually has almost the same symptoms of mania, but to a slightly lesser degree. So that's the difference between hypomania and mania is the degree of symptoms, but the actual symptoms are almost identical. And then bipolar disorder type two also experiences the same major depressive episodes. Again, with that cluster of symptoms, that very low mood. Uh, When it comes to mania and depression and hypomania and depression, people with bipolar disorder spend um, on average more time depressed uh, than people with bipolar disorder type one. We know that from statistics. There's also a type of bipolar disorder known as cyclothymia. Cyclothymia is actually a type of bipolar disorder where you do have elevated and lower moods, but they are less dramatic and the shifts are um, very, um, are very long. So you have very long moods, they're elevated, very low mood or very long moods that are low. And it's less severe than either bipolar type one or type two, but still can be very difficult for someone to deal with if, for example, they're in a very, very prolonged mood that can uh, very prolonged low mood that can be very difficult to deal with in your life, for example. So it's still. Needs- 
needs treatment. And then there's something called other specified um, bipolar disorder, other specified or non-specified bipolar disorder. I know that's a big mouthful, but all that means is that a person has bipolar disorder, but they don't fit into one of the buckets that have been defined. So they don't neatly fit in bipolar one, two, or cyclothymia. And so they're given this kind of um, other category, which means that they have moods that fit into the idea of bipolar disorder, but they don't fit specifically in one of the predetermined categories. Are cyclothymia and the other specific bipolar disorder, is this kind of fairly newly diagnosed just because of the different strains? I've never heard of those two. Cyclothymia and I'm just calling it other, um, but um, those those two types of bipolar disorder have been around for quite some time. The other bipolar disorder used to be known as bipolar not otherwise specified, which is a bit of a nicer term, bipolar NOS, we used to call it that. Um, it's just that its name got replaced. And that's been um, in the DSM, so the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is how mental illnesses are defined. And it has been in there for quite some time. So they're not actually new disorders, but we don't hear people talking about them very much. And it's probably just because they don't want to complicate the situation. So they just want, so most people don't even know that there are multiple kinds of bipolar disorder, let alone that there are four kinds. We've come a long way with, with the medications and things like that. I mean, as you know, America used to perform lobotomies on bipolars and they would be in the psych ward. And that would literally be to put like a tube inside the brain and sort of manipulate the, the brain chemicals, correct? And just, it, it would make them way worse than they were before. And do you think, do, what, do you think well, they ever I helped? Think that, uh, so a lobotomy, uh, what, what they would try to do is hit a particular part of the brain that would help primarily with psychosis. So psychosis is something that we see in bipolar disorder type one, and psychosis is the presence of delusions and or hallucinations. So certainly when a person is floridly psychotic, um, it does not mean that they are dangerous in any way. What it means is that they are having experiences that don't actually exist or they believe things that aren't real. That's what that means. Now, if a person is floridly in this state, they do need help without a doubt, it's, it's a psychiatric emergency. Um, and before there were medications to address it, trying to hit a part of the brain that would reduce psychosis made sense. I'm not saying it makes sense today. Of course it doesn't. But at that um, time, but at that time, it was the best we had. It was the best we understood. And so it, would tr they, it was an attempt to try to help these people who literally couldn't control their own lives. They couldn't control their own minds. And this was an attempt to do that. Now, of course, this is horrific by today's standards. But at the time, yeah, it was the best we had. Sure. And when you say delusions and, halluc and hallucinations, um, as, as you and I both know, in type one, in mania, it's called delusions of grandeur. And a, a, a bipolar type one can stay up for like 72 hours, write a book, create an invention and do all of these things. And, and it is delusions of grandeur. So do you think that um, that would have been in the same category as what they were seeing. Perhaps the psychiatrists were seeing these delusions of grandeur and actually making them look like they were making them, you know, they would look at them as delusions or hallucinations. Yes, we absolutely know through charted history that delusions of grandeur are just one kind of psychosis that people experience in bipolar disorder and other disorders. Um, it's one type of 
psychosis. And yes, you you tend to think that you're brilliant, that you're a genius, that you even are 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 a god, right? You yes, untouchable. That's exactly right. So that type of delusion it has been documented for hundreds of years. Uh, we know that those exist, and it's certainly something that to the person who's experiencing it, it feels very real. And I think it's really important to understand that, that as sure as I am talking to you right now, and I know that, I know that it is real, to a person with psychosis, they know that they are a God. Literally, they know it, right? So it's important to understand that it's very real to them, but to the person on the outside who's looking at them, it looks very, and I'm just gonna use the word crazy. It looks, you know, absolutely like there's something wrong with that person because there is something wrong, but that person doesn't understand that. Um, but the outside world looks at it and yeah, it's, it's very difficult because a person who believes that they're a God might believe that they could fly, might jump off a roof, right? So we're talking about a state that can actually endanger a person. And, and they're, they actually become kind of egomaniacal, like almost kind of cocky in a way, like, no, I am this person. I, I am, I can fly. And it is a lot. Correct. Correct. They, ab they absolutely believe that they are, you know, untouchable, as you said, above everyone else. And they can be very aggravated when other people don't recognize their genius. They can get very, very upset about that um, and aggressive about it because other people around them are not recognizing the God that they are. And in their defense, a lot of them are extremely high level, especially the, the functioning bipolars, unbelievably intelligent, as we know. And, I'm, and, and I look at you, you do have a higher level of intelligence, even at 12. You had a higher awareness because I just think you, it's a heightened sense of emotion, of self-awareness that no other 12-year-old would have if they didn't have something like this and with your experience. So I think that in some ways, it's almost a gift, a blessing, but a curse um, in some of these diseases. Would you so I definitely, um, I hate to disagree with a host. Um, oh, please, this is what this is for. Um, but I absolutely disagree. It is not a blessing, but a curse. It is a curse. Um, because what happens is when you have a delusion of grandeur, so I don't experience psychosis because I do have bipolar disorder type two. However, that doesn't mean that I haven't experienced a mood similar to that. I have certainly as part of my hypomania. And what happens is, yes, you think you can write a book. <laughs> yes, you think you can fly. Yes, you think you can do whatever you think you can do. And you think you're brilliant and that other people should recognize your brilliance and all of that. But you're not, right? You are not brilliant. And the book that you write is probably gibberish. And the things that you think are so brilliant, the art maybe that you create when you're experiencing this, once you come down and you have your own mind and your own brain back in an equilibrium, you're able to look at that and go, oh my gosh, that is not good. <laughs> that is wow. something terrible that I've produced that I just thought was brilliant at the time because my brain was so messed up at that moment. So to me, that is not in any way a blessing. Now I'm not suggesting that people can't produce amazing things during mania because certainly that has occurred. Mm -hmm. People with bipolar disorder have a higher degree of creativity. That is 100% true. However, it's not a higher degree of intelligence. Uh, it's actually a higher degree of creativity on in general. That doesn't mean that every person with bipolar disorder is creative because mm -hmm. certainly we are not all creative, but some people are, and certainly some people have created great things during mania. Most of us just create stuff that is not so great that we just thought was great. No, I really appreciate you breaking that down for me because I didn't realize that 
that you, if, if you were to write a book and then you go back and look at it later in a, in a non-mania state, that it wouldn't be good for you. I would think that that person would be egomaniacal to think that, yes, it's still brilliant. I just have to do a couple of tweaks. So interesting. No, thank you, Natasha, for breaking that down for me. I had, I did have a different understanding of that. Um, this is why, this is why we do these things. So can you talk about medications? I mean, Lithium after after lobotomy seemed to have been the gold standard of the medication, but that just makes you so lethargic. And um, we've come a long way with meds. Do you think that uh, someone could be without medication and still function with the so, right training and everything like that? I think that it's very important to realize that people have a very different experience of bipolar disorder. So for me, my life is dramatically impacted by bipolar disorder on an everyday level, and I am highly disabled by it. That's my experience with bipolar disorder. And certainly it's many other people's experience with bipolar disorder as well. However, that does not mean that everyone has that experience. So some people do experience bipolar disorder in a way that is more manageable. So that's my life with medication. My life without medication would certainly be me dead. That would be me. Um, but for other people, once they get stabilized on medication and once they are able to learn enough tools and coping skills, um, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction may be able to survive without medication. But when you look at bipolar type one and type two, we're talking about a tiny, tiny fraction of people. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's highly, highly unlikely. You feel as if some bipolars go off their medications and self-medicate with something else. Do you see that? Pretty common? Yes. It's extremely common. You know, medication is very difficult to deal with, especially when you're trying to find something that works for you. Because typically what happens is you go on the medication and you get all the side effects and the bad effects long before you see anything good happen. And so it's very common for a person to want to throw their medication out the window because they're experiencing all these terrible side effects and it, nothing positive is happening for them. And I don't blame them at all. I've had that exact same feeling. And so if you don't try a medication long enough, you will not see positive effects. That's the first thing. And some people don't because it's very hard for them. And the other thing is some people really do have a lot of side effects that they get no matter what. Typically what you see is side effects diminish over time, but you do have to stay on the medication long-term in order to actually see that happen. And that can be very difficult for some people. And, you know, it's a very complicated issue in bipolar disorder because some people do miss their hypomanias or their manias. Um, they miss parts of themselves that that gives them. And the medication takes that away, of course. The medication takes your manias away. That's what it's for. And so people then say, well, I don't want this medication because it has taken away a part of me that I miss. Now, you know, it's a very complicated issue, medication and bipolar. And for so many reasons, people will go off of it at one point or multiple points during their treatment. However, what I generally see is no matter what the reason is for going off medication, people end up in the hospital. That's what happens. You go off your medication today, I almost guarantee that in the future, you have a hospital stay <laughs> in your future. That's what's going to happen to you. Um, that is something that I see over and over and over again. And it's only with medication that people are able to find an equilibrium and carve out their own life. 
And as we know with a lot of these psychosomatics um, and psychotropics, you cannot really go off them cold turkey or you can't fool around with the dosages. And when you say go to the hospital, do you mean because of maybe toxicity or do you mean perhaps for a suicide attempt? I mean that they will end up in the hospital with bipolar disorder symptoms. So because of a suicide attempt or because fluid mania or because of psychosis or because of whatever happens that, you know, you either try to destroy your life or your lifestyle. Got it. Can I just t- we quickly talk about the side effects? Um, you talked about masking the personality, and I've seen that many times where they're just kind of in a, like someone in a manic state, it's just kind of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like it's just, everything's kind of slow and that they, then their last day personality or their, or their ability to create things like that. Um, since this is a fitness and exercise podcast, nutrition on top of mental health, do you see, I've seen a lot of the side effects come in some of these, um, medications that there's a lot of weight gain or a lot of weight loss. And when someone's experiencing depression already and maybe dealing with a weight issue, the last thing we want to deal with is extra weight gain from a medication that may or may not be working. So have you seen that type of thing in, in colleagues or, or peers in your group at all with this? Certainly a hundred percent. So I've gained huge amount of weight on medication. I know many people have gained large amounts of weight on medication. Someone once said to me, and I believe this to be true. When you have bipolar disorder, you need to remember sanity over vanity. So, well, I respect people's, I, um, desire to have a certain body shape, to look a certain way. Sanity is so much more important than how you look. And you do not appreciate that until your sanity has been taken away from you. And so, yes, it is a struggle looking in the mirror and seeing, oh my gosh, I've gained all this weight. Yes, that is a struggle. And, you know, people do battle that struggle in a variety of ways. And I want to be supportive of those choices. But I think that Um, what's more important for me is understanding that how I look is a tiny part of who I am. It's like infinitesimal. And so who I am is beyond that entirely. And so this is just my body and it does a lot of things for me. Um, and I, I want to do what I can do to keep it around here, uh, to keep it alive, to keep it moving. Um, but how I look is just, it's just, it's vapid compared to who I am. Right. And my sanity has a lot more to do with who I am than my body does. And you're beautiful. It's just, it's just how you feel about yourself. And when, when it's, but I love that quote, sanity over vanity. And I can imagine a 12 or 13 year old who's, who is in middle school where everything is based on looks, everything is Instagram. So that would be even more difficult. And Natasha, is that because with a, with that particular side effect, is it just because that medication is sodium based and it grabs on to all the water. And basically it's just a lot of water retention on top of it. Do you think that's what like the chemical makeup is for that? No, no, not at all. Um, it's actually much more complicated than that. So depending on the medication, it can change how your body um, deals with sugar. Yeah, okay. how your body metabolizes, how your body deals with sugar. And it also affects your hunger. So it actually increases your hunger and can actually decrease your ability to tell when you're full. It can actually do both of those things in your brain. So literally you're hungry at all times and can't detect when you're full. I've been on some medications where I literally would be eating and would still be hungry, 
even though I was eating at the time. So, and that's a switch in your brain that the medication is playing with. That's actually saying you're still hungry. You're still hungry. And you actually, there are people on those medications having that side effect that have to fight every single minute of the day, not to eat because they're constantly by their brain being told that they are hungry. Now, of course, this doesn't happen to everyone. Many people take these medications and don't have that side, kind of side effect, but some people do. A bipolar would not have enough to deal with already than having these side effects. So it's totally understandable. And a lot of the ways that people do self-medicate are the drugs, alcohol, things like that. Um, may I ask if your father had bipolar or has bipolar? He had bipolar disorder. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was a child. However, he didn't actually tell anyone. So he didn't tell my mother or anyone else. Um, and it wasn't until I was diagnosed in my 20s that he actually told me that he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, he, to the best of my knowledge, um, took medication only once in his life and did not continue with it and chose to self-medicate with alcohol primarily. Yeah. Sure. Okay. And when you say twenties, I found it very interesting because I feel as if a lot of the bipolars that are famous, like for example, Kurt Cobain, I feel like the age of 25 or 26 typically is the, is the age at, at, at which the diagnosis takes place. Have you seen that? Am I completely incorrect? I've read a couple articles where that seems to be in that mid twenties range. So a lot of people are diagnosed in their mid twenties because they actually, um, but they had symptoms starting from when they were even under 18. So I started my symptoms very, very young. Some people do, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be diagnosed at that time. Mm -hmm. Certainly as a child and teenager, it is extremely challenging to diagnose bipolar disorder. When I was a child, you didn't do that. Um, now there is, there are people who are more qualified to do it, but I can tell you that we don't actually have diagnostic criteria for bipolar disorder in children. So there literally doesn't exist any. So the only person who can diagnose someone with bipolar disorder is a person who has a lot of clinical experience and is using that as their guide because we literally don't have any from a scientific basis. So people are doing the best they can to try to work through that issue, but it's very complicated. And so certainly when someone is under 18, there is often hesitancy to diagnose. And I do understand that. That doesn't necessarily mean, however, that the person doesn't have it. It just means that it couldn't be diagnosed at that time. Uh, many people start exhibiting symptoms in their early 20s, um, but often it takes up to 10 years to get the correct diagnosis. And do you feel as if there are some psychiatrists out there or psycho well, psychiatrists for the most part that seem to just overly diagnose? Do you feel as if sometimes it's overly diagnosed or maybe diagnosed too quickly. And as we know, they're being paid by the pharmaceutical companies as a back cut where they should be also getting a combination of psychology with the, with the medication. Have you seen that? So primarily what we have in North America is actually, it's a dual-edged problem. We have underdiagnosis and we have overdiagnosis. We actually have both of those problems. So we have people incorrectly diagnosed and we have people who aren't diagnosed that need to be. And it's very clear from studies that both of those problems are happening. 
Now, in the case of someone with bipolar disorder, I always recommend that a person like that see a psychiatrist and not get diagnosed and treated with their GP, so their family doctor. And that's because a GP really has no qualifications to be diagnosing bipolar disorder. That doesn't mean that people don't do it, however. Um, however, if you've been diagnosed or you suspect that you have a serious mental illness, you need to see a psychiatrist. They are the people who specialize in what's going on with you. If you had cancer, you would see an oncologist. And if you have a mental illness, you need to see a psychiatrist. That's how it needs to work. So I think when we see diagnosis problems, a lot of it comes from GPs. Now, this is not necessarily all their fault. Sometimes people can't get in to see psychiatrists. Then what do you do? Well, then you are left with a GP trying to deal with a problem that is something that, you know, was something that they were not trained for necessarily. So, you know, so it's a very complicated problem, particularly in the United States. But what really needs to happen from a patient perspective is you need to be your own best advocate and you need to be in there and you need to say, no, I need to see a qualified professional. I need to see a psychiatrist. I need to get a proper screening and a proper diagnosis. And I need to know why I have that diagnosis because that's what's going to help you um, move forward. And yes, I do agree with you that people do need um, the treatment of a psychologist along with a psychiatrist. I 100% agree with you on that. But again, that can be very difficult to get depending on your medical insurance in the US. And the waiting lists, everything. It's, it's, a, it's a monstrosity. No, you, you mentioned North America several times. Natasha, have you seen maybe a better way of dealing with these types of diseases in say Germany or Sweden? So I guess um, I don't have enough experience with Europe to say specifically what Europe does well and not well. But what I will say is that because I'm in Canada and we have universal health care here, we do have a much greater rate of people being treated appropriately for mental illness because, because anyone can walk into a psychiatrist's office for free here. Now, of course, to see a psychiatrist, you need a referral, but once you walk in the office, it's free. To see your GP is free, right? So certainly that means that there are barriers that have been removed in Canada that exist in the United States. So this does mean that people can get treatment more successfully in Canada, more easily in Canada because those barriers aren't there. Another reason why so many Americans try to go to Canada and Canada's like, we don't, we don't welcome every single American. I have a lot of Canadian friends. It's like, no, we're not just opening the borders for any, any old American that wants to come up here. But I've had several friends move to Toronto and Vancouver in the last um, six months, specifically from Los Angeles, which totally makes sense among different states in America. Right now, I, I had a friend that was living in Wisconsin. She never in a million years could have gotten any type of help. She moved to Minnesota brilliant. It was like Canada. She got everything for free. She was in, in a re rehab center for a while. Just unbelievable treatment. Wisconsin did not offer that. It's great to hear that some states are making progress in that area yeah. because certainly everyone needs to, right? All of the states need to get together and move forward on mental health care and mental health treatment because it is a huge issue in the economy. It costs the economy billions of dollars a year. All of the people with mental illness who can't work because they're not getting appropriate treatment. 
This is not something that anyone wants, not from a personal perspective and not from a societal perspective. Um, certainly, we don't want people on the street. What happens when people are on the street? Um, they, get, they start to use drugs and there starts to be violence. And then homelessness, what do we do with all of the people who are homeless? How do we help them? You know, we want to avert that. We want to stop a person from becoming homeless. How do you do that? You do that by treating mental illness first before the person ends up on the street. It's true. I used to volunteer on Skid Row in Los Angeles with a doctor and she would actually um, distribute the medications, but she would have to go and distribute the medications. And these, uh, the people could may or may not want to take them, but if she didn't go down there, if we don't go down there as a group, they never would have taken them, but you're right. right. Why don't, why doesn't a country just pay for it ahead of time and then nip it in the bud and it would be less costly later. Um, I, I do agree with you on that. Um, I, I wanted to quickly highlight something that um, Natasha and I had talked briefly before recording, but I just heard last night about a documentary film called uh, Body Brokers. And as you probably know, sometimes patients can actually receive treatment for free at a facility and the insurance company pays for that. Have you seen that? Yes. Okay. Um, so apparently there's a man almost to the same point as like the Lori Lachlan case where they're paying for their kids to go to college. Well, this broker is getting paid left and right from all these insurance companies, putting patients into to beautiful rehab centers, like in Malibu with the ocean and things like that. And as we both know, the success rate is about 10% of someone getting better and then, of, or they just go right back in or just, they don't get better at all. So every time this happens, they put the same patients back in, they, they collect on all sides of the, of, the, of the coin from all these insurance companies and the patient gets paid to be there. So it's, it's called body brokers where it's just a total scam. But here we go again on a good deed that is completely manipulated and abused. So it's called body brokers. So I just found it so interesting that I heard about it last night and we were gonna be talking today, but it's something that I'm gonna be watching because um, I find it fascinating. And it's, it's just too bad that it's 10% success rate because do you think that the person doesn't want to get better at the end of the day? Or do you think those problems are not being attacked at the core? Why, why, do you, why is it only 10%? It is a very complicated issue for sure. When you deal with addiction, for example, which I think maybe is um, what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. Addiction has many, there are many issues around addiction. Um, so for example, yes, they may be self-medicating because of a mental illness. Well, even if you, for example, stop drinking alcohol, you still have a mental illness. So that mental illness then has to be treated. If you are perhaps um, an addict and you do so because of emotional trauma in your life. Well, again, if you start, stop using drugs, that's great, but you have to deal with your emotional trauma. Otherwise you won't have the tools to move forward. So yes, you are 100% correct that getting off a substance is important, but it is the first step in what needs to be a very long path for someone. And so sometimes what we see is that in, um, in a facility, they are dealt with maybe really well and handheld for the time that they're in the facility, but then there's nothing afterwards. There's no aftercare. And so, yeah, they just show them the door. And that is a recipe for failure. If you have had, you know, a really positive experience in a cocoon, that's great. But then to be kicked out of that cocoon and have nothing, it certainly uh, could be very difficult for you to maintain your positive gains. That's an excellent point. And Natasha, what, how can we support you? What are your goals coming up for the future? 
Well, um, I am a professional speaker. So of course I am looking to speak at any event where someone is looking to educate on mental health and mental illness. To contact me, you can do that through natashatracy.com. I've spoken to audiences from five people to 500 people. So I'm very happy to work with any group or event that wants to do that. Secondly, you can buy my book and it is called Lost Marbles, Insights into My Life with Depression and Bipolar. So that book is uh, dedicated to people who have bipolar disorder or depression. And there are full chapters on things like um, you know, there are lots of coping skills and there are things like suicide that are discussed at length. And uh, really, it gives people some very solid techniques for how to deal with some of the challenges that come with mental illness. And then finally, I do run masterclasses and those can be found through my website as well. Uh, you just click on masterclasses at natashatracy.com. And I have um, 11 masterclasses that are scheduled live at times and also available on demand. And those are everything from sex and bipolar to anxiety, to anger, to how to deal with an initial diagnosis. Um, and so I'm I talk about all those things at length. So those are the things that I do that I offer to the community that I hope people will support. Oh, congratulations on that. And um, I'll put all your, your links, of course, in the, in, the, in the notes, but you're also on Instagram at Natasha underscore Tracy underscore writer, correct? Correct. Okay. I'll, of course, I'll put all of that on there. And just really quickly, if, if, you, if someone sees somebody that's experiencing suicidal tendencies, how can you talk to them and how would you guide them? Yeah, so I think that when someone is having suicidal thoughts, um, when they're in that spot, what they really need is for someone to be there and not judge them. So what you really need to do is talk to the person who's feeling suicidal, listen to what they have to say, listen to them actively and without judgment. It is very difficult to deal with any kind of suicidal thoughts and you often think that you will be judged for it. So the last thing that you need is someone saying, your life's not that bad, people have it worse. <clears throat> How can you think that way? Mind over matter. Exactly. Um, basically the things to say to someone who might be suicidal include things like, I am here for you. I care about you. This does not change how I feel about you. I love you. Let's get help together. Let's see how we can handle this problem together. I am going to be here for you no matter what happens next. These are the kind of things that people who are suicidal absolutely need to hear from people. And what you need to do is you need to take your friend or loved one, you need to take them by the hand and you need to say, we're going to get you some help now. And you need to go with them to the doctor or you need to go with them to the ER or you need to both call a helpline or you need to do whatever you need to do, but you need to make sure that person gets help. By the time a person is suicidal, that problem, whatever it is, is no longer something they can deal with on their own. They now need help. It is extremely critical and it is extremely important. So you need to make sure that they get it in some way. Now, people can be resistant to this, and I understand that. But your job as a loved one is to make sure that they get it. And look, in very dire cases where a person was in danger, I have called 911. I can honestly tell you that's one of the hardest things that you can do for someone that you love. But consider this. It is much better to have them hate you alive than for them to be dead. Yeah. Great advice. I love that. And just one final note, because you mentioned something so great. Um, you said the word together. Natasha, just like alcoholics have AA, and then the families have Al-Anon. 
is there anything for bipolars? Well, people with bipolar disorder certainly do seek out group help, and that's a good thing. You can absolutely learn so much from other people who have the same disorder as you. And as you said, you know, people in AA or another group, you know, they learn from other people who have addictions. So you can learn from other people with a mental illness. And you can do this through groups like NAMI, the National Alliance uh, of Mental Illness. And you can just look them up at NAMI.org and you can find local groups through their site. The other thing you can do is um, go to the DBSA website um, and they will also uh, put you in contact with peer groups. Now there are also probably local mental health organizations that can also help you with this, but often um, it's those major uh, national organizations that are gonna be able to point you to a group either online or in person where you actually can meet other people who have mental illness, who are struggling with the same things that you're struggling with and who can offer you tips that work for them that may also work for you. What great advice right there. Thank you so much. Well, we support you wholeheartedly on Lost Marbles and in the very near future, Found Marbles and anybody who would need from a, from a school, from a corporation, and all and all of the above to use your services and it'll all be in the links below but i thank you so much and you need to feed figaro or at least listen he <laughs> needs a listener thank you so much for having me i really appreciate your platform and being able to talk about mental health in this way and that was renowned mental health speaker author consultant and writer natasha tracy we appreciate you for listening and please subscribe and rate the show on itunes you can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Luminary Tuned In, or at Believe.com. You can reach out to me for any questions or topics you'd like covered on the show at Anne McDaniels or at Anne McDaniels Actress. And I'll see you next time on So Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.